Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Republic of Nehru. With a landmass of just eight square miles and a little under 11,000 inhabitants, it is the third smallest nation in the world, behind only Monaco and Vatican City. But what it lacks in size, it more than makes up for in economic lessons, because this small little island in the South Pacific was home to the most extreme downturn ever. In the past, we've talked a lot about how natural resources can have a huge impact on many countries' economies. Think of the immense oil wealth enjoyed by many of the Persian Gulf states. But when not managed correctly, natural resource wealth can sometimes do more harm than good in the long run, which is why many economists even go so far as to speak of the natural resource curse. This tiny Pacific Island nation is perhaps the best single case study of what can go wrong. The country went from rags to riches, only to go back to somehow being worse than it started before it struck it rich. The lesson of Nehru is one that all economists can learn from because it is one of the rare times in history that we have been able to clearly explore the economic mechanisms that drive these booms and busts on such a clear scale. So, how did Nehru become the richest country in the world? What mistakes do they make that led to them squandering this wealth? And finally, how did this tiny country actually end up worse off in the long run? Nehru was first discovered by Europeans in 1789 when a British ship passed by a piece of land covered with a green central plateau, overgrown with swaying palms and framed with white sand beaches. The island's natural beauty led the British to call it Pleasant Island. A few decades later, the first outsiders settled on Nehru, which is just one third the size of Manhattan. Initially, the island's resources were thought to just be coconuts and pigs, until a British geologist discovered high-grade phosphate ore. In simple words, the country didn't get oil rich. Instead, the scientists found dried-up bird poop and algae, which was somehow more valuable because it could be used mostly in fertilisers, but also in cosmetics and animal fodder. Around the turn of the 20th century, when it was discovered, 80% of the Pleasant Island was rich in this mineral, a treasure of accumulated seabird excrement mixed with marine microorganisms undiscovered up until that time. It might sound disgusting, but it was the key to feeding a growing global population, so it was extremely valuable. Mining rights were quickly sold to Germany, who was the coloniser of Nehru at the time. In the following years, around 80 million metric tonnes of this valuable substance got exported from the tiny island, as shipping ports, processing facilities and supporting industries sprung up on a spit of land barely bigger than Central Park. Germany became busy fighting the First World War, during which time Australia seized the opportunity and snatched Nehru for itself. The island had by this point just become an offshore mining site. Phosphate was mostly sold at a subsidised rate, which we here in Australia call mates rates, to farmers in Australia, New Zealand and Great Britain. Unfortunately, by this time, decades of mining had already destroyed much of Nehru's natural landscape. The top side of the island was back then described in National Geographic as a ghastly tract of land, quite a nosedive from Pleasant Island. From here on, it gets even worse. During World War II, Japan invaded the island and spread terror on Nehru, including forced labour camps and mass drownings. At the end of World War II, only 600 Nehruians survived. Once the war was over and Japan surrendered, the island was once again handed back to the Australians and their exploitation of the island's stinky treasures continued. 
In the years between 1945 and 1968, phosphate mining activities reached new record highs. When the Nehruzians finally achieved their independence, nobody was forcing them to mine phosphate anymore, but by this point their entire economy already revolved around exporting this natural resource. Independent Nehru had lost one third of its islands to the mines, and the inhabitants lived around to a by now even ghastly attractive land, a barren moonland. All economies are limited by the factors of production, land, labour and capital. It's just in the case of Nehru, these limitations were extreme. This island has a tiny population that wasn't skilled in doing anything other than digging smelly rocks out of the ground. The size of their nation and its isolated position in the world meant that many industries just weren't feasible, and while phosphorus mining had made the island a lot of money, most of it at this point had been claimed by the nations that held the island as their colony. They didn't have the infrastructure or expertise to develop any other industries, so phosphate experts were further increased to milk the cow while she was still alive. They really had no way of competitively doing anything else. It was already apparent that the supply of phosphate would run out within a lifespan or two, but that did not stop the Nehruzians from rightfully demanding their share of the pie. This initiated an epoch of Nehru's history where some called it the wealthiest little island in the Pacific. A little more than a decade after their independence, Nehru became internationally hailed as the single richest country in the world on a per capita basis. In 1981, they had a GDP per capita of $27,000, which translates to $88,000 today. For comparison, the US GDP per capita was $14,000 at the time. This means the average Nehruan was twice as rich as the average American. Of course, GDP per capita is far from a perfect measure of how well the average citizen is doing. And if you want to learn more about GDP, check out this video on our second channel, Economics Explained Essentials. But GDP per capita is still the easiest measure to compare economies against each other, and it gives us at least a crude approximation of living standards. With their abundant phosphate wealth and political independence, Nehru was finally doing quite well for itself. Sports stars are told to retire at their peak of success, and many people in Nehru followed this advice. After all, they could easily rely on free education and healthcare by the government and royalties from the phosphate earnings by landowners. Many inhabitants were able to be unemployed by choice. At the same time, all sorts of crazy stories happened in Nehru. Sports cars were the accessory to possess, despite the country's small size. You can drive around the entire perimeter of the island at a leisurely pace in one hour. Hardly the ideal place for drag racing. One police chief decided to bring a Lamborghini to the island, only to realise he did not fit behind the wheel. The reason he was unable to drive his new toy was part of a looming health crisis on the island. By 1980, an epidemiologist declared Nehru to have an obesity epidemic. The underlying factors were increased wealth and poor food choices. Junk food consumption skyrocketed, and still, in 2002, the country was ranked the worst of 170 nations by the World Health Organization in terms of average body mass index, and Erosian's life expectancy is only slightly above 60. The healthy indigenous foods such as coconuts and fish got replaced by imported foods, another consequence of mining. The poor health of the workforce can have severe economic consequences as well. Not fitting behind the wheel of your new Lamborghini suddenly becomes a very small issue considering the overall implications of this obesity crisis. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the health situation of Nehru back then and now. Most meals consist of instant noodles, white rice, anything out of a can, and soda. Tobacco and binge drinking are also common. Amy McLennan, an anthropologist at the University of Oxford, commented on her stay with the words, I was lucky to find one vegetable a week. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Interestingly enough, Neruzians are quite educated and aware of the risks associated with bad nutrition and obesity. There is no lack of school programs advocating proper nutrition. Rather, the problem was a lack of access to high-quality food. The decades of phosphate mining destroyed the natural environment to such a great extent that the agricultural industry became almost non-existent. And, spoiler alert, but the economic downturn after the phosphate ran out meant that most Neruzians could only afford cheap processed foods. During the colonial days, the Neruzian people only received a small fraction of the wealth generated by the phosphate mining. Given this background, it was rather economic necessity which prompted them to continue mining after independence rather than greed. Having to import all goods, including food and water, is not a sustainable way of living. Since all the attention went to phosphate mining, nobody bothered to waste time on manufacturing or agriculture. For agriculture, the land was too exploited anyway after all the topsoil got removed for mining activities. This is just a classic case of Dutch disease, but taken to an extreme degree given the otherwise limited resources of the neuron economy. One strategy to avoid Dutch disease is diversification of the economy. This approach can be seen amongst Middle Eastern nations which try to diversify their economies actively. You can learn more about this in our recent video about the economies of the Gulf states' big dumb mega projects. To what extent these projects will be successful is still a matter of serious debate, but at least they are trying. The necessity to diversify was no news to the country's leaders, and they did try to venture into different industries. One was offshore banking, resulting in licences for roughly 400 foreign banks at the beginning of the 1990s. These Nehruan bank branches were initially a huge success, but the strategy behind this success was, let's say, dubious at best. Customers did not need to visit the island to open a bank account. With so-called economic citizenship, one could easily get a Nehruan passport through which the country becomes a paradise for money laundering and tax evasion. The government earned millions through fees, but it was not the solution to fix Nehru's economy after running out all of its phosphate treasure. In 2005, Nehru stopped the offshore banking business and it started requiring a physical presence to obtain a bank licence. This was not due to a change of heart, but rather due to immense international pressure, the US even categorising Nehru as a rogue state under the 2001 Patriot Act. Now, another way to deal with Dutch disease is to take the Norwegian approach, which is to set up a sovereign wealth fund designed to invest the natural resource wealth in a way that will generate dividends for generations to come. A lot of earnings from the phosphate boom had been invested abroad, meant for a time when their treasure would dwindle. This is a great idea that was unfortunately not implemented well at all. Risky investments and plain old fraud made the country lose a lot of its investments, ultimately pushing Nehru to the verge of bankruptcy. Not even the discovery of secondary phosphate deposits and the subsequent second phosphate rush changed the imminent economic collapse. The country went so broke, even the central bank went bankrupt. Their overseas real estate assets were repossessed and their aeroplanes were seized. Oh yes, planes. Nehru had launched a national airline in the 1970s. There was, however, one more glorious attempt to secure financial well-being. Nehru infamously became one of the biggest disasters in the history of London theatre. Nehru had earlier invested in Leonardo the Musical, A Portrait of Love. The musical depicted a fictional love triangle between Da Vinci, Mona Lisa and a soldier. Needless to say, the musical became a huge flop at a time when Nehru could not afford any kind of financial loss. By 2001, they were completely out of phosphate and their foreign investments had almost all ended up in failure. 
By this point, the country was completely broke and had a paltry GDP of $32 million adjusted for inflation. Unemployment skyrocketed to 90% and the school system mostly collapsed. Just a reminder, we are talking about the richest country in the world just years earlier. Unfortunately, this is only the beginning of one of the darker chapters as a result of the economic misery Nehru faced at the turn of the century. In 2001, the large Norwegian freighter MV Tampa wanted to dock in Australia. Earlier, the crew rescued more than 400 mostly Afghan refugees from a sinking boat. Australia refused the MV Tampa to enter Australian waters and instead found the so-called Pacific Solution, an offshore detention camp on Nehru. Australia paid Nehru for their efforts of keeping immigrants away from their shores. It also created employment for the island and led to some bizarre situations. Nehru was still in no position to waive off millions of dollars in return for cooperation. The client state was far too intertwined with their large neighbour to refuse the new proposal. Even the fierce hostility of many Nehruians did not change this policy. Over the past two decades, Australia has employed Nehru's detention services on and off and they continue to house migrants to this day. This, along with foreign aid, mostly from Australia, has kept the island economy afloat. Barely. James Anjamea, an old minister of the Nehru Congregational Church, was born in 1911 and practically saw it all, even the musical. Anjamea lamented to a New York Times reporter saying, I wish we'd never discovered that phosphate. I wish Nehru could look like it was before, when I was a boy. It was so beautiful. There were trees, it was green everywhere, and we could eat fresh coconuts and breadfruit. Now I see what's happened here, and I want to cry. Now it's time to put Nehru on the Economics Explained National Leaderboard. Starting as always with size, Nehru has a GDP of $133 million, making it the third smallest economy in the world, ahead of Montserrat and Tuvalu, two other micronations. Based on its small size, we can't give Nehru anything better than a 1 out of 10. The small GDP is spread out across a small population of a little over 10,000 citizens. As of 2021, they had a GDP per capita of $12,000, putting it almost exactly in line with the global average, so Nehru gets a 5 out of 10. Stability and confidence has been negatively impacted by the country's poor track record of handling its phosphate wealth, their brief venture with unregulated banking, and their controversial policies of providing outsourced detention centres. Given this history, we can only give Nehru a 3 out of 10. Growth is perhaps the most interesting metric. Growth was obviously very strong in the 1970s and 80s as their phosphate exports allowed them to become the richest country in the world. But after running out of phosphate in the 1990s, their GDP fell by more than 90%. However, the economy has exhibited strong growth since then, growing at an average annualised rate of 7% per year. The growth has been almost entirely driven by the detention centres and foreign aid. Nevertheless, 7% per year is incredibly impressive, no matter the circumstances. So Nehru gets a score of 9 out of 10. And finally, industry. Today, Nehru's main industry is outsourced refugee detention centres. While this remains a lucrative source of revenue for the country, it does not build the technological capabilities needed to create more advanced industries down the line should this singular revenue stream ever dry up. Because of this, Nehru gets a 2 out of 10. Altogether, this gives Nehru an average score of 4 out of 10, which puts it down here on the Economics Explained National Leaderboard. Thanks for watching, mate. Bye. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off, 
wherever you get your podcasts.